Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Censored, a podcast about censorship that has itself been censored. The last episode title included the word wanker, which was blanked out by Apple Podcasts to spare the world's blushes. Unbelievably, you can't say wanker on the internet, or at least on Apple Podcasts. The Irish Censorship of Publications Board, whose list of banned books I'm reading, would be so proud. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, sometime historian and full-time reader. This week's episode features a book by an American author, Rona Jaff, called The Best of Everything. It was published in 1958, but not censored in Ireland until 1961, when it was one of 408 books banned that year. This very high number reflected the rise and rise of mass-market cheap paperbacks, which had first appeared in 1935, but became a really important part of British and American popular culture after World War II. Books the price of a packet of cigarettes were sold in train stations, news agents and drugstores. Authors churned out pulp fiction to meet the insatiable appetite for stories, while presses published classic books in this new cheap format. Literature was more widely available than ever, with more readers consuming more books and more genres of literature than ever before. Unlike other English-speaking countries, where censorship loosened as this readership expanded, the Irish were determined to limit the literature available to the reading public. By the time Jaff wrote her book, the heyday of censorship in Britain and America had passed. Contemporaries thought it was quite a shocking book, but it was an instant bestseller in the States. Unfortunately, in Ireland, the censors banned popular books with as much vigour as highbrow literature. The best of everything like the 1960s American bestsellers that were considered scandalous, such as Peyton Place or The Valley of the Dolls, were banned in Ireland. I've read this book many times, but I had no idea it was deemed indecent until I found it on the list of censored books. Lots of people probably have this apparently obscene book on their shelves. It was published in the Penguin Modern Classics series in 2010, because the book was rediscovered when it featured in Mad Men. After Dom Draper was shown reading it, demand for this 52-year-old book increased dramatically. Before I reread it for this podcast, I guessed that the subject matter, single girls in the big city, was the reason it was censored. 
I remembered it as very like Sex in the City, but without the frank and explicit sexual content I associate with the TV show. But before I put my filth glasses on, I need a drink. And there are lots of beverages to choose from in this book. The characters are hard-drinking, chain-smoking women, knocking back martinis like water after work. If you want to recreate the iconic meal of this literary landscape, they love to eat steak. But just steak. Apparently no sides. I think that the neat spirits and a slab of fried meat embody the aggression and macho atmosphere of the world in which these three women are trying to carve out a space for themselves. I could channel my inner working girl with a gin or a vodka martini or a straight scotch, but I'm going to drink a pony of brandy. As far as I can tell, a pony measures anywhere between 30 and 50 millilitres. If it is 50 millilitres, everyone must have been trolleyed all the time because the characters drink brandy with reckless abandon. I couldn't resist the idea of such a luxurious beverage being drunk like that. It seems to sum up the madness of what I think urban New York is. But if you prefer to avoid booze, you would be more true to the women in this book than you think. During a girl's night in at the end of the book, Caroline, the main character, quote, did not bother to make cocktails because neither of them ever drank when they were not out with men, unquote. This throwaway detail reveals just how difficult it was for women to live their lives according to their own personal preferences rather than the gender rules of the day. However, I like brandy, so I'm going to drink it. Don't be trapped by social conventions. Drink whatever you like. The Best of Everything tells the story of four women living, working and dating in New York. They meet in the office of Fabian Publications, where their various career paths have taken them. Caroline is a university graduate from a privileged family who lives within commuting distance of the city. She's determined to escape the typing pool, but first has to survive her bitch of a boss, Miss Farrow. Typically enough, Miss Farrow hates and fears younger, more ambitious women who could steal her spot. She works Caroline mercilessly, passing off her work as her own. You may recognise some of the plot of the film Working Girl from 1988, which starred Melanie Griffith as the talented secretary and Sigourney Weaver as the horrible boss. Caroline is the central character, but her two friends, April and Greg, offer alternative versions of women at work in 1950s New York. April is a stunningly beautiful country bumpkin who's not especially interested in her career, preferring to dedicate her life to falling in love. Naturally, she has the worst taste in men. The third character, Greg, is an actress who takes office work to earn money between her roles on the stage. There is a fourth woman, Barbara, who also works at Fabian, but she isn't a close personal friend of the others, probably because she's a divorced single mother living with her own mother. She doesn't really have time to hang out with girlfriends. Her failed marriage and childcare responsibilities have set her apart from the other single girls. My mental image of the three friends is that Caroline looks a bit like Audrey Hepburn, very chic and properly dressed in elegant suits and dresses. Greg's preternaturally young looks are reminiscent of Twiggy, while April is best imagined as Honor Blackman, who played the Bond girl Pussy Galore. That I can't imagine what Barbara looks like shows how differently she is written and conceptualised within this book. 
This could have been a book about the glamour of working in New York as a single girl, but because Jaff is a good writer with opinions about society, it takes a serious look at the status of women. More pertinently, it details all the failings of the men the characters work with, or date, or were married to. The book is pretty clear that most men are fairly useless. There's a trust fund boy who manipulates and exploits one woman and an endless parade of divorced sleazebags. It's a veritable checklist of straight male fuckwittery. I'm not sure if this honesty about straight men was sufficient reason to ban it, but the censorship board was comprised entirely of fragile male egos who may have been offended at the negative portrayal of men. Funnily enough, at the very beginning, Caroline seems like the sort of woman a censor would agree with. She thinks that her employer's magazines have disgracefully trashy covers with gratuitous sexual content. If she was in charge, she would change that straight away. She's not exactly permissive and appears prudish at a number of points in the book. For me, reading this book like a 1950s Irish censor was quite difficult because I disliked being judgmental. I really enjoy this book and keep it on my bookshelves because it's worth rereading. But for the sake of the podcast, I persisted and I did find lots of bannable content. Firstly, there are a number of examples of sexual assault of the central characters by their male bosses. These are not sensationalised or gratuitous, being written from the point of view of the women at the receiving end of groping and lechery. But the censors disapproved of abusive sex just as much as consensual sex, because they believed that discussions of crime would be both thrilling and corrupting. Seams of sexual crime could arouse readers and or encourage them to commit similar offences. Jaff does not write that sort of sexual assault scene. We first meet Mr. Shalimar, the serial abuser who's also named after the iconic perfume, in the first chapter of the book, when he pervs all over April. After a truly creeptastic exchange in his office where he plies her with scotch, he takes her out for steak. Here's the encounter between a half-drunk April and her boss, Mr. Shalimar, and this is page 37. He came up to her so quickly she had more a sense of movement than any warning and took her into his arms. His arms were like straps around her so that she could hardly breathe and his mouth covered hers hot and violent and authoritative. As soon as the first instant of numb incredulity shattered, she was filled with terror. She twisted her head from side to side, trying to escape the lips and teeth that were trying to devour her and gave a choked little cry. He let her go. The really disappointing part about April's response to this is although she's repulsed instinctively, as you saw in that passage, she comes over all romantic in the taxi home. And this is the next page, page 38. She did not feel like crying again. She did not even feel like shrinking away from the memory of the forbidden, unexpected kiss that had so frightened her. As a matter of fact, now that she was alone and safe, the feeling of the kiss returned, at first frightening, and then vaguely thrilling and wonderful. Mr. Shalimar had kissed her. Mr. Shalimar. She should feel resentful, she knew. She should feel angered. But she felt instead the stirring of a new feeling, a kind of romantic intoxication. It warmed her secretly and a little guiltily now that she had embraced it all the way home. Honestly, I find this part really disturbing and gross. 
Not that I'd ban a book for this sort of thing, but it's really not pleasant. However, I'd imagine that the biggest objection to Jaff's sexual harassment scenes was that the male perpetrators were married. Here's April's response again from page 37. An old man, at least 50. A married man, right in front of his wife's picture on the desk. Infidelity was definitely censor-worthy, even if the unfaithful characters were odious and unsympathetic. Even worse, some of the men and women in this book who feature as good characters are themselves divorced. The Irish state had outlawed divorce in 1925, and censorship was used to suppress any awareness of the existence of such a thing. British newspapers were censored because they often carried news items from English divorce courts. Bizarrely, the Irish censors believed that even talking about divorce or adultery was indecent or obscene. As an American, Jaff didn't think of divorce as a moral issue, so her pragmatic attitude to marriage breakdown was deeply upsetting to the Irish censors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But apart from the moral issues around crime and marriage, are there any rude bits in this book? There are plenty of consensual sexual encounters, though these are not unambiguously carnal. The characters are complex enough that it's not straight smut. Caroline fancies Mike Rice, an editor of a religious magazine whose drink habit and divorce shows in his haggard, prematurely aged face. He's much older than her, but she decides that she could reform or rehabilitate him. Mike sensibly tells her this isn't going to happen, but she persists in going on dates with him. Although she likes him, she doesn't physically desire him very much, which leads to a number of awkward exchanges when he tries to talk about sex. And this is from page 110. You know, she told him one night, if it's possible to say that one mind is sleeping with another mind, then that's what we're doing. Anything is possible, Mike said. Tell me what you want me to do to you. You know I hate to talk that way. Tell me. How else will I know? It embarrasses me. Do you want me to kiss you? 
Yes, she said. Then say so. I want you to kiss me. And you never do, you know, just good night like an old uncle. He leaned across the table in the blue-lighted dark and kissed her lightly on the corner of her lips. There. There you go again, she couldn't help smiling. If I started to kiss you, really kiss you, I couldn't stop there. You make me feel like such a child. Now that I read this excerpt out of context, it seems creepy, but I think it's more miscommunication than exploitation. He's attracted to her and wants to talk about physical intimacy, but she's freaked out by it. Maybe talking like this in a bar bothers her, but she doesn't say so. It seems that sex makes her uncomfortable. Mike also asked her to think of him at a particular time each evening, when he would also think of her, like a mental date. She is then weirdly freaked out when he tells her that he masturbated while thinking of her. Here's page 109 where this exchange happens. As for Mike, she knew that he had a more pronounced physical reaction to these thoughts of her than she did to her thoughts of him. When he told her what he did about it, she was appalled. Why? he asked. But that's so... that's for children. Little boys. Adolescents. Caroline, when will you learn that nothing two people do when they love each other is wrong? That's just it. It isn't two people. It's by yourself. It's dreadful. It's so isolated. It isn't isolated because it brings me closer to you. How can it when it embarrasses me even to think of you doing it? If we're having a love affair, he said, you mustn't be embarrassed by anything. You'll have to accept your feelings and mine too. You probably noticed that wasn't an explicit discussion of masturbation, but it was definitely implied. Caroline is quite prudish here, and I think the censors would have liked her reticence. But of course, she doesn't object to sex outside marriage on principle, so she's definitely not repressed enough for an Irish censor. I don't want to give away all the relationship spoilers by reading out too many sex scenes, because I'm pretty invested in you lot reading this book. It's a great book. You really should read it. But if you do want to find the sex scenes, there's one featuring Greg on page 86, and another featuring Barbara on page 301. Also, most of these sex scenes are really long and quite literary. They're neither explicit nor graphic. I would tag them as more feelings without porn, or perhaps very mild smut. But there is one sex scene I'm going to read out to you because I think it's actually quite funny, and I don't know why I laugh at it. And it's on page 122, and it features Caroline and Mike. He began to kiss her body then, and she allowed him to do anything he wanted to, not moving, not touching him except to keep her fingers gently on the back of his neck as long as she could. Hold me, he said. She did. Now, he said. It was not a question or a command, but simply a statement that it was time for the mystery to be ended and the deeper, newer mystery to be revealed. She closed her eyes and waited, feeling her whole body waiting at the edge of passion. She had not believed anything could hurt so much. It was as if he were trying to drive a spike through a solid wall of flesh. Involuntarily, she gave a cry. I don't know why, but I find his use of the word now very funny. After this disappointing encounter, Caroline realises she doesn't really desire him and never would again. It's interesting that her attitude to sex 
entirely refutes the nymphomaniac trope that was popular in 1950s pulp fiction. I think Jaff is trying to make a point here that sex does not drive women crazy. I can't help thinking that this was a message the censorious would approve of. But whatever about the ambivalent attitude to sex by the main character and the low levels of smut in the sex scenes, the references to contraception and abortion would have been clear, unambiguous reasons to ban this book. While there are no instructions on how to procure an abortion or how to practice contraception, acknowledging that these things existed was definitely not allowed by the censors. Abortion has only been legal in Ireland since 2018, that's just two years, while it was illegal to provide information on abortion services outside the state up until 1992. Ireland has had a particularly restrictive abortion regime. And, until the 1990s, people could marry at 16 years of age, but couldn't buy condoms until they were 18. As late as 1989, the state was prosecuting a family planning association for selling condoms in the Virgin Megastore. It goes without saying that talking about condoms or abortion in 1960s Ireland was not encouraged. The use of condoms is explicitly discussed by Greg and her lover on pages 87 to 88. When her lover complains about the condom, Greg wryly remarks, You're speaking of the sixteenth of an inch between me and the home for unmarried mothers. This sentence may shock contemporary Irish readers more than past ones, because we're presently in a moral lather over institutions for unmarried mothers. But even societies with divorce and contraception like America shamed and humiliated unmarried mothers. Abortion is a significant part of the plot of this book, but I don't want to ruin the story by saying precisely how. It was not freely available in America at the time, but clearly accessible to those with the money and contacts to arrange it. As abortion was anathema to the vast majority of Irish people in the 1960s, many would have been shocked by Jaff's non-judgmental attitude to it. But for me, the most depressing and shocking thing about the book is Caroline's fate at the end. Her friends have all married, and she is left alone. Their friendship cannot survive marriage, which remakes the women and their place in the world, tying them inextricably and finally to their husbands. The married women give up their jobs, they move away, they assume new identities. When Caroline rejects the safe, sensible bloke and a morally bankrupt ex, the author struggles to visualise the character's fate outside marriage. What happens to a single girl in her mid-twenties who isn't willing to settle for any man who'll have her? Unfortunately, there's nothing for it but to invent a ludicrous plot device. Caroline runs away to Las Vegas with a beautiful movie star. Yes, honestly. It's obvious this ridiculous relationship doesn't fit with the otherwise sophisticated narrative, but Jaff can't see any way out of her single girl dilemma. The problem she has is that all her characters are looking, with varying degrees of desperation, to get married. It is the driving force of all the women's lives, exemplified by April who has little time for anything else. Caroline is the most interesting and ambitious of the characters, but her career only exists because she needs a distraction from her failed engagement. It's quite clear that she would have preferred to be married to Eddie, her college sweetheart. Working in an office as a single girl is not her first choice. The cultural imperative to get married is so powerful that Jaff cannot escape from it, 
even though she proves heterosexual marriage in the 1950s, is pretty terrible. I suppose this entire book was problematic for an Irish censor. A book about single young women who were negotiating the world without guidance from their parents or priests would have deeply disturbed socially conservative censors. It's a vision of capitalist individualism that terrified many at the time. The censors would have been deeply disturbed by Jaff's questioning of marriage, even if she does acquiesce to the institution by the end. That is, if they had read the whole book. I'm guessing the more broad-minded of them would have reached page 37, where the first mention of infidelity appeared. The real reactionaries would have felt queasy at the opening image of single working women streaming out of train stations, earning their own money and experiencing some measure of personal independence. So, let's see how the best of everything scores in censorship bingo. Firstly, there's infidelity. Then there's abortion, which relates to one of the main characters in the book. There's sexual assault, which all of them experience. Divorce. Barbara is divorced, as is Mike Rice, a sympathetic male character. There's mention of contraception and condoms. There's also LGBTQI content, but only in a glancing and casual sense, often quite homophobic remarks from other characters. But even referring to gay men living in open relationships would have been unimaginable in 1960s Ireland. Masturbation is also referred to, as I discussed. The last square on censorship bingo that this book ticks, I think, is feminism. This might be a controversial interpretation because it's not a political text. And it looks very much like a romance novel, but it's full of sexual politics. Unfortunately, the combination of the genre, the romance novel, and the social expectations made it almost impossible for Jaffe to fully realise her critique of marriage. On the censorship bingo card, the best of everything scores 9 out of 25. This is a reasonably respectable score for a book that doesn't contain much obvious smut. This book seems quite modern to us today, because we're still talking about the same things. Jaff's concerns still fill newspaper and magazine pages today. We're always asking, how can women have it all? This question bothered Jaff in 1958 just as much as it bothers us in 2020. Reading this mildly indecent book might help you answer that question. And even if it doesn't, at least you'll have fun reading the smut. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.